The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Nagel. Welcome to Tech Sequences. On Thursday, February 24th of this year, as Russian tanks rolled towards Ukraine, the post-Cold War world came to an abrupt and shocking end. Not only did the Russian invasion mark the end of one era and the beginning of another, but the Russo-Ukrainian conflict also rushed in a new age of cyber risk for both U.S. and its European allies. Long-standing fears about Russian prowess in cyber warfare prompted the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, to issue a warning to every organization, large and small, to expect and be prepared for a disruptive cyber incident. This followed on the heels of CISA's previous warning on the risks posed by Russian cyber attacks for the nation's critical infrastructure. The European Central Bank has also alerted European financial institutions of the risk of retaliatory Russian cyber attacks in the event of sanctions and related market disruptions. Thankfully, none of the dire predictions about the potential Russian attacks against critical U.S. infrastructure have come true yet. However, Russian cyber warfare is not limited to hacking incidents. The Russian state has been credited with conducting a slew of disinformation campaigns both domestically and abroad. Although Russia's military prowess and performance is in question following decades of purported corruption, its cyber warfare capabilities are not. The conflict in Ukraine has led to an unprecedented response from the US and her allies, from economic sanctions, asset seizures, corporate pullouts to informal aid to Ukrainian cyber defenders. There is real fear about the conflict spilling over from Ukraine to other European countries as well as fear about what next steps Russia may take in cyber warfare and against whom. Just a few days ago, the newly sworn in president of Costa Rica had to declare a state of emergency because of a massive ransomware attack that rocked his government agencies and crippled the economy. The attack was credited to a Russian speaking crime syndicate who had backed Putin's campaign in Ukraine. Was the attack against Costa Rica collateral damage or an isolated incident? If we are indeed in a new and perhaps somewhat darker era, what does it pretend for cyber warfare and a new cybersecurity landscape? Rafael Rojosinski is an author, expert, and frequent keynote speaker on digital transformation and cyber risk and serves as an advisor to several corporate boards. He is the founder and principal of SecDev Group and CEO of Zero Point Security, company specializing in digital risk and cybersecurity. Rafael is also a senior fellow with Canada's Centre for International Governance Innovation and has previously held appointments with the International Institute for Strategic Studies in the United Kingdom, the Monk School of Global Affairs International Development Research Centre in Canada, Ford Foundation and the Social Science Research Council of the United States. Rafael's career spans 37 countries, including conflict zones in the former Soviet Union, the Middle East and Africa. In academia, he served as the director of the Advanced Network Research Group at the University of Cambridge and is the author and contributor to numerous publications, including Stuxnet and the Future of Cyber War and Tracking GhostNet, 
the first evidence-based investigation of a dedicated cyber espionage network. Welcome, Rafal. Thank you. Very much uh, glad to be here. So first of all, what is critical infrastructure and why would it be such a tempting target for adversaries? Well, critical infrastructure really refers to the digital tools, the digital networks that frankly support pretty well everything that we do in business and everything that we do for everyday life. So critical infrastructure includes everything from water systems, electricity, telecommunications to ISPs. Critical infrastructure, however, can also include things like elections. Um, the ability to hold elections with integrity, in some cases, is considered to be the critical infrastructure of democracy. All of these things are digitally dependent, and all of these things are obviously vulnerable in an age when we've seen digital technologies become both a platform as well as the landscape for conflict. So why have we not seen yet the kind of attacks against critical infrastructure and the like that everyone from the White House to CISA has warned us about? Is it just a matter of time? Well, that's a really interesting question. And I think here we kind of have to look at the world before the 24th of February, 2022 and the world after. Before the 24th of February, we had imagined what we thought new uh, cyber war was going to look like. We had seen you know, more than two decades worth of malware of different kinds, disinformation campaigns run by everyone from rogue actors to criminal actors to opportunists to nation states. But we really hadn't ever seen cyber as part of a state-on-state, -state, um, modern state-on-state, -state, um, full-on conflict scenario. Um, and I think there, the surprise is that the cyber war that we expected to see is not the cyber war that we got. And, and let me maybe outline that a little bit. So the cyber war that we expected to see is exactly the scenario that you're alluding to, and that is massive malware usage targeting critical infrastructure in order to cripple the ability of a nation state to pursue um, any kind of, of military resistance. This was the Richard Clark um, digital Pearl Harbor uh, scenario where we really thought that these systems would become overwhelmed and crippled. Well, that didn't happen. And I think that didn't happen for a number of reasons. First of all, Ukraine since 2014 has been the subject of state level attacks. We've had two critical infrastructure attacks that took down electricity in Kiev. Um, we have a spate of other kinds of malware that was deployed on everything uh, from accounting systems to basic telephony and access. So in many ways, Ukraine was probably the most prepared country in the world for malware type attacks or code based type attacks um, of any country um, by the time that uh, February 24th came around. So a lot of what we expected to see didn't happen principally because of the fact that the Ukrainians were ready and they were backed up by a coalition of actors, including direct support from governments such as the United States, but more importantly, through a coalition of companies that put their talent and their resources on the line to make sure that this kind of event, this Pearl Harbor event type event, simply would not happen. What we did see, however, was different kinds of uh, cyber war, which I think are worthwhile looking at. First of all, we saw the weaponization of social media platforms and other kinds of online platforms. The fact that the Ukrainians have been essentially winning the information war against the Russians for the last 77 days is because of the fact that they were able to successfully work across the existing technology platforms to effectively dominate the narrative and to deliver it you know, to the heart of the Russian population as well as to their own populations into the West. So the weaponization of platforms is an important aspect of the way that modern cyber war is being fought. We also can't discount military cyber. 
And that is those capabilities, which, which aren't those that are usually used by the black hooded hooky, uh, hooded uh, hackers that we think of uh, when we think of cyber warfare, but rather by professionals who recognize that a combination of electronic warfare, space-based assets, use of drones could be rapidly effective against other military targets. The reasons that the Russians have had tremendous difficulties with command and control, why their large formations have been targeted effectively by small units of Ukrainian military have a lot to do with those cyber forward defense teams that have been operating quietly, supporting the Ukrainians from day one of this conflict. Thirdly, we've had the economic dimensions of cyber warfare and here sanctions are a really big deal. If you recognize that pretty well every modern software is now delivered as a license through the cloud from Microsoft uh, to through to AutoCAD, the withdrawal of those services or the threat of the withdrawal of those services or Oracle licenses, for example, could be crippling to a national economy and certainly something which has been wielded ex exceptionally well um, in the campaign against Russia, specifically in terms of targeting its capability within the military industrial complex. You cannot build a modern jet fighter unless you use CAD. And if you cannot access that CAD software because it's been sanctioned, then that's a big challenge and problem. You suddenly made me a fan of software licensing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an effective weapon. I mean, think about it this way. In order to be able to insert tailor-made software or malware into a banking system, such as to cripple or at least disable its ability to work, that takes a lot of resources and a lot of talent. Withdraw the Oracle license, and all of a sudden you have the same effect, but a greater scale. So understanding that economic dimension of sanctions through withdrawal of licenses, especially when we have a highly uh, hierarchical and concentrated IT industry, it's pretty devastating. And that's a weapon, or that's being definitely weaponized within this conflict. Uh, as Leslie said, I hadn't thought about software uh, licenses in that way, but you're right. Um, let's go back to the the idea that the, about critical infrastructure. You talked about how Ukrainians were really ready, but in the U.S., we'd heard for forever that we really weren't ready. Our water plants, our electrical grid, has not been really up to snuff in terms of just basic, you know, cyber hygiene. So why is it that we haven't been attacked? I mean, you know, we mentioned that Costa Rica was attacked which was so odd, Costa Rica is not in this conflict at all. So is it just a matter of time or is it because they're engaged elsewhere? I think, I think it's a number of factors, but we can sort of talk about them in order. Um, certainly the use of cyber weapons is not a trivial decision uh, because it's akin to throwing rocks in a glass house. Um, the very same systems that we're dependent on in order to run hydro or, or electrical systems are exactly the same ones that the Russian Federation is dependent on as well, which means, you know, if we have a free-for-all and going after infrastructure in the way that you described, uh, then the blowback against Russia, particularly since it has probably the world's longest and most vulnerable critical infrastructure, and that is its oil pipeline and extraction uh, facilities, um, may make them think twice in terms of using those weapons at scale. But there's another reason here too. Um, the Russian government doesn't own all of its hackers. It outsources a lot of its work to hackers. And those hackers aren't just Russian, they are Russian speaking, which means that there's been quite a fragmentation within the Russian hacking community between those who are in support of the special operation or the occupation and invasion of Ukraine and those that are not. Russian speaking hackers can be found in Ukraine. 
They can be found in Tajikistan. They can be found in Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. So there isn't quite the kind of unity of effort uh, that one might think um, behind this. And thirdly, you know, there's also the question that cyber attacks are hard to do. They may seem trivial in the age of ransomware and the way that we've seen them, but to do them well and with effect, with strategic effect, takes a lot more than just throwing a bunch of random code out in order to cripple a city for a couple of days. So it sounds like you're describing that there's there are actually some elements of maybe detente or at least some considerations where this isn't the fully heated war, but it's not really clear whether or not we're, we are in fact waiting for another colonial pipeline or if, if it is just a matter of time. Are, are you in the camp that it's just a matter of time or are you thinking that it really is a much more complex and nuanced situation? Well, I think, first of all, you know, just to go back a little bit in our conversation, it's not that we didn't see significant cyber attacks by the Russians at the beginning of this conflict. In fact, one attack, which has been now formally attributed to the Russians, was against uh, the satellite system that was used by both the Ukrainian government as well as within Europe, the Vietcom site. Um, in part, this was designed to try to cripple the government's ability to communicate in Ukraine. Um, in part, it was also because it would impact the links that were used by the Bakhtiar drones that the Ukrainians have used so effectively as part of their military campaign. And certainly, if we take a look at the magnitude and scale of that attack, which was a firmware Based attack. In other words, it's, it wasn't just malware to put something online. It was there to damage modems to such a point where they had to be physically replaced. So we've seen those kinds of attacks. Um, and, and in that case, it spilled over the borders of Ukraine because it didn't just hit Ukraine, it hit all of Europe and all the modems that were being used within that. Um, the point is, however, that we haven't seen these attacks really be strategically significant and important within the context of this conflict. And that might tell us something a little bit about cyber attacks. Look, cyber attacks in the way that we've been used to them, and we use that term attack, you know, as if it was a military concept for the last 15 years, really have been weapons of mass disruption. Um, they've created a lot of economic harm. They've obviously created a lot of chaos in particular sectors, you know, just ask the city of Atlanta. Um, it was pretty devastating for them, but it's not equivalent. It doesn't have the equivalent poignancy of a kinetic strike. It's not easy to be able to synchronize what you do in cyberspace with the movement of troops or weapons that occupy territory on the ground. So I think it's told us a little bit something about the limitations of the kind of cyber war we expected to see. On the other hand, the use of very localized cyber capabilities, such as the very, very rapid passing of intelligence from national sources to small teams operating on the ground in Ukraine, the ability to be able to use drones to precision strike against Russian troops. Well, that's cyber too, but that's a different kind of cyber war than we talked about when it was dominated in the headlines by people wearing hoodies uh, in dark rooms behind keyboards. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It, it has a, a totally different image now, doesn't it? You mentioned about blowback. So, for example, if we were to attack Russia's critical infrastructure, that there would be ample reasons for them to do the same thing to us. Because of that, in conventional warfare, there's there's this idea of diplomacy, right? Trying to uh, do diplomacy before, you know, if diplomacy fails, that's when you go through warfare. We don't have... Uh, the same sort of conventions, like in the traditional sense, there were Geneva conventions that laid out the rules of engagement, but we don't have it in cyber war. Um, is something like that needed? And if so, where would that come from? 
So we don't have a Geneva Convention for Cyber Conflict, although we've had uh, attempts by Microsoft to try to push a, a digital G Geneva Convention through private means. But we've had had a process within the UN through the governmental group of experts that's attempted over the last 15 years to come up with certain norms. And those are norms are, are not a convention, doesn't have the same kind of power, but they're basically loose rules that countries will agree to abide by, you know, out of mutual interest. And interestingly enough, last year, um, the GGE finally agreed upon a set of norms where you've had the Russian Federation, China, and you know, the US, the like-minded countries and the, those opposed, agree on something. And that agreement was that they would not target critical infrastructure in times of war. So here's the challenge. Over the last 77 days, we've seen the Ukrainian IT army effectively crowdsource large-scale attacks against Russian critical infrastructure. And that's everything from government sites to mass media to banks and others. And we, meaning the countries of the West, have said nothing in terms of whether or not that was a good or bad behavior. The danger here is that we've essentially allowed expediency in the way that we feel we should be supporting the Ukrainians undermine the very rules, the very norms that we were seeking to establish as a means of creating collective security for us all. And that's super dangerous because that may be fine in the context of what we're doing now, you know, the, the war against Russian aggression, but that essentially creates a playbook. It creates a precedent for any country to pursue exactly the same kind of uh, approach um, when they have a grievance against us. Um, so we need to think hard in terms of what this legalization of privateering means for the future of cybersecurity, given now that we've essentially thrown out what we've established as a rule book and established a whole new one, which in effect has created the new wild, well, West. <laughs> well, isn't it um, easy in a way for us to do that, to be, to think about expediency, for example, because we have plausible deniability in cyber. In other words, if you were to break a siege, right? it would be very easy to, to you, you can't have plausible deniability. It's very easy to see when you did it, how you did it, who did it. Whereas in cyber warfare, as you said, if they are um, crowdsourcing, you know, help to attack Russian infrastructure, you know, who can actually claim uh, responsibility? Is it the Ukrainian government if it's the third party? So is that an, another additional wrench that th gets thrown into the idea of a cyber diplomacy? Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, there, there's, there's two sort of measures here that you can use. Um, within the uh, area of criminal justice, um, you have to create positive attribution down to an individual. Um, within international law, um, it can be as easy as simply attributing the source, meaning the jurisdiction from which attacks are launched. So, for example, if cyber attacks are being launched from an AWS infrastructure that happens to be located you know, in, in the U.S. Or, or anywhere that they have their data centers around the world, um, presumably what the Russian Federation can do is hold that jurisdiction to account to say that, you know, Belgium or, or U.S. is uh, supporting as a co-belligerent um, the intentionality of the war by not preventing cyber attacks from being launched from within its jurisdiction. That's the precedent that's being set. But that gets very messy very quickly. I mean, in my day job, we actually, we, we run a honey farm 
uh, looking at attacks on IoT devices. So we had a look to see what was happening to our Ukrainian IoT sensor uh, over the course of the weeks leading up to the 24th of February. Didn't see much unusual for reasons, but we did see that there was a really big spike of attacks uh, from Canada. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, really big spike of attacks from two IP addresses on networks in Canada. Now, it turns out, if we did a little digging, we could see that it looks like those two IP addresses are exit points for not Tor, but a Tor-like network IP address sharing environment, right? So so the, who knows where the attacks actually started from? So the, the blame escalation could be massive. You know, I, I agree that that's the logic of you, you, you apply it to the jurisdiction, but you know, it's going to be the the blame escalation would be massive. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right, and I mean, this is this has been this sort of common problem that we've had with attributing cyber attacks anyway over the last 10, 15 years. I think what's changed here is you know you have the Ukrainian government calling for a volunteer IT army and effectively mobilizing it by providing target lists and saying go for it. You know, and if we find you know yeah. as a result of that, if we're the Russian Federation, you know, the attacks are coming from Japan or Canada or anywhere else, kind of doesn't matter whether they're being staged from there. The fact that the Canada is not doing anything about it in terms of transgressing the very norm that it uh, signed onto, which is to prevent critical infrastructure from being attacked in warfare, that's the challenge. You know that that we're that we're yeah. actively trying to act against or act yeah. for a norm that we've established, and that that's you know why this is important, Leslie, is because. This is the, going to be the legacy of Ukraine. You know, when, once this is over, this is the consequences we're going to have to live with. I certainly understand that. And I think part of where I was going with it was, I mean, on if you're the Canadian network operator, the activity that we saw, for instance, was a blip. Unless we actually solve the, the whole problem of cyber attacks, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that trying to hold individual network operators to for blame is is actually going to work, but I did want to think a little bit more about as you, you know you're you're pointing to the long term the follow on consequences and and I and I wonder even going back to the whole notion of software upon which Russia depends being removed from from their toolboxes, does this mean that Russia is going to go off and and basically rewrite their own CAD software and and I mean are we are we going to get into digital isolationism? Uh, even assuming we get beyond the, the sort of cyber warfare era? I think inevitably so. Um, in fact, you know, if we look beyond Russia, uh, one interesting thing that's happened in the last two weeks has been the Chinese government basically sending a directive saying we will no longer use any Western made PCs. We will prefer our own operating system. We will develop our own tools. You know, that I think we're getting into an age where, where there's a tremendous sensitivity to the fact that there is a vulnerability to supply chains, especially supply chains, which really sit at the heart of what our institutions do. Um, that's, you know, ant antithetical to globalization. Uh, but the reality is that the, you know, geopolitical apple cart has been overturned by what's happened here. Um, and that's not something that's going to go away for long. Now, what does that mean for small and mid medium countries? That's a really good question. Because China can develop its own software industry, ultimately. Russia, maybe with some difficulty, can reestablish it at some level. Um, but that's not true for Guyana or Nigeria or Brazil or South Africa or even, frankly, Canada. Um, so we may well start seeing, you know, geopolitical blocks that are now becoming geotechnical blocks um, that effectively try to create uh, alliances based upon shared values and also shared technology, which they can trust. So it's a brand new world that we're going to be in. In the, in the opening, we alluded to the fact that the this conflict brought an end to this post-Cold War world. And you're also pointing out that it probably brought to an end this notion of 
globalization, which we lived with, you know, from the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was meant to be democratizing, making access available to everybody, not just for goods and services, but also for information. And we're seeing that now really go back the other way, as you and Leslie mentioned, uh, the threat of sort of digital blocks forming. Um, this Ukrainian conflict has also had, has shown just an, an incredible amount of response from areas that normally other kind of conflicts would not have. And certainly we've had conflicts before. Um, you know, Russia invaded Libya, for example. We didn't see this kind of response. To what extent has it changed the, the, the collective response, companies, you know, imposing sanctions, pulling out both physically and also digitally? How has that changed the cybersecurity landscape itself? Well, so what's really interesting is, you know, Ukraine is coming at the tail end of the global pandemic, which was also a huge wake up moment for most governments and especially corporations as to just how much of their organization was at risk because they were leveraged on digital resources. So one thing that certainly happened in the last two years, you know, is, is much more board level attention, first of all, into cybersecurity, recognizing that it's something that has to be quantified, that requires government and not governance, not just management attention. But you've also seen an incredible responsiveness from the industry itself. And I'm not talking about the cybersecurity industry, but for example, from countries like uh, companies like Microsoft, you know, who effectively have rethought their entire business strategy about becoming a cloud to endpoint security company. Um, same thing with Google and others, you know, so the consciousness of, 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 of effectively of security being a value that companies now have to build into their products, you know, it's transformed over the last two years. Flash forward to Ukraine, you know, as I mentioned at, at, during my earlier remarks, Ukraine really was the place where we all expected the all out brunt, you know, of a state backed synchronized cyber campaign to happen. Um, and I think, you know, as the history of this conflict is going to be written up, recognizing how much work was done prior to the 24th of February by companies like Microsoft and others to really prepare for what they expected to see has meant that, you know, the absence of what we expected isn't coincidental at all, but it's actually part of really good, considerable planning that's been put in place and capabilities. That's actually uh, somewhat comforting. Uh, given the the type of headlines you wake up to every day. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like we've not done a great job at wearing masks, but we did much better in the background and the digital <laughs> and, the, and the digital coverage. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think we really have. But to what extent are we actually um, better? I'm, I'm just going to play the devil's advocate here because Leslie and I have done a number of different episodes where we looked at how much um, so much of the power, uh, you know, centers of the internet are really now concentrated. So in terms of computing, in terms of control, in terms of power, and whereas the resiliency of the internet really was the fact that you couldn't break any one part of it, you know, it, it would be like a hydra, it would just grow another arm. In this case, you know, so much is dependent on Amazon AWS, so much is dependent on, you know, is that a does that provide us with an additional level of liability now in this post-Cold War world where we have to now be really mindful of an attack against one of these because going to one of these centers of, of concentration of power and taking that out really takes out infrastructure from so many other, including government agencies. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, anytime that you have a monoculture, it becomes a single point of failure. 
Um, but on the other hand, you know, concentration of effort and concentration of capital um, also means that these, you know, monocultures are far, far better able to defend themselves than if we had a, you know, large ecosystem of, of competing companies. So it, it, I think, goes both ways. The other thing I'd say is, look, you know, for all the all the resilience or all the dependence that we have on AWS and, and Azure and others, especially here in sort of North America and Europe, um, a lot of what's making the Ukrainian uh, internet currently work is old school internet. Um, you know, it's store and forward email that's done off of, you know, 15 year old Garmin handsets that are being distributed in the Eastern territories, put into metal buckets in order to prevent the propagation of RF signal, you know, that, that's used to keep basic communication up and running. Um, you know, it's it's old fashioned uh, store and forward networks that are being used across telephone lines in order to make sure that email works. Um, you know, it's it's the arcane science of BGP, you know, how to do border control protocol routing between autonomous systems, of which there are plenty in Ukraine because they're one of the first countries to actually get on the Internet in the former Soviet Union um, that are making these things work. You know, so they're basic communication that the internet can, can can provide and basic services you know which which are actually done by a lot of hacktivists um you know peer-to-peer -peer networks and things are keeping that country functioning in, in in circumstances where infrastructure is being taken offline all the time and when access to aws may not necessarily be there we've also seen huge innovation in starlink and the fact that they've now been able to distribute satellite terminals across Ukraine to keep people connected has created a centralized but decentralized internet uh, in ways that we haven't seen before. And you know, I worked in Syria in the early days trying to keep communications up um, at the time that uh, the Assad regime started um, effectively pulverizing civil society and others. So I've seen how that's changed over 10 years and it's pretty drastic. So it sounds like it's actually a, a positive uh, versus com compared to some of the other uh, conflicts we had before. So this is a positive consequence of what's come out of uh, Ukraine. I think so. I mean, as I said, you know, the, the last three years has been all about digital resilience. And that's been because of the fact that we've become drastically so much more dependent upon these technologies. And I think what we're seeing in Ukraine is actually the positive result of that. Well, let's talk about infrastructure and money because we're on the topic of infrastructure. So the two things that actually help make these attacks happen one is having the infrastructure to do it, and two is having the funds to do it. So what we've seen as a result of the Ukrainian conflict is that Western com uh, companies and governments, sort of this and this private-public partnership, have banded together and have exacted a price. Uh, so, for example, the German government just brought down the um, servers associated with the Hydra. Uh, uh, cryptocurrency exchange, which was used for money laundering. So is, is targeting the, the money supply and targeting the infrastructure uh, of, of what makes these attacks happen an appropriate response to really limiting the amount of damage that these attacks could, could exact? So there's, there's two different parts to your question. One is money and one is infrastructure. And I think both of them should be taken separately. So, you know, the cost of a, of a Tomahawk a cruise missile is about $1.4 million a pop. You can do a lot with $1.4 million in terms of renting infrastructure to, to, to create distributed denial of service attacks, for example. Um, one thing to recognize here is that, you know, cyber warfare is cheap at the end of the day. Um, mm -hmm. Even if you have to buy rent, borrow infrastructure, you know, create software, it's a lot less expensive than creating, you know, big hardware toys that you throw around on a battlefield. So from that point of view, um, 
staunching the money supply isn't that much of an issue because of the relative inexpensive nature of, um, of, of the kind of tools and effects that you can generate with that. The access to internet or, or infrastructure part, I think is a really interesting one. Um, look, you know, there may be 50 ways to leave your lover, but the reality is there's probably only six good ways to route traffic on the internet. Um, and if you're able to match IP addresses um, with origination, um, your ability to be able to throttle someone's ability to lease, lend, borrow, you know, larger infrastructure is pretty good. Um, there's only so many paths out of the Russian Federation. Um, there's only so many ways that they can set up CNC servers. Um, and your ability to be able to enumerate that really radically can uh, reduce the scope of their action anywhere. Um, one of the reasons why we've been successful, more or less, in being able to contain the North Korean threat, threat is because it's easy to kind of, you know, effectively circumscribe and identify their pattern of life, their tradecraft, um, and create barriers for being them to being able to do it. We can also inversely rise, raise the cost of them doing it um, by retribution targeted uh, responses. So what does the end look like? Is there an end? Even if sort of, even if Russian troops leave Ukraine, it sounds like the, the continuation could be the long tail of, of the, of the, dispute could be could be quite long in terms of sort of digital attacks and, and ongoing um, well look I, I think warfare there, there's there's a there's a kind of a historical epic here um think of airplanes and world war one you know we had the airplane initially it was used as as a singular tool during the first world war to to do observation to drop one off bombs um, by the end of the first world war we had a concept of what air warfare would look like by the end of the Second World War, we had an idea of what strategic air campaigns would look like. Um, by the 1950s, we had the airland battle. You know, so there's an evolution here. And I think the threshold that we crossed after the 24th of February is we went from the imagined cyber war that we thought it was going to be, which is hacker behind computer doing something, something now that has become an integral part of warfare, whether that is warfare in the conventional sense that we're seeing it played out in, in Ukraine now, or whether it's going to be in different forms of warfare that we're going to see evolving over the next 20 years. Ukraine is the playbook. This is where the rules are being written. This is where the norms of what is going to be acceptable or not acceptable are also going to be made. And you can expect, just like we saw you know, after the First and Second World Wars, all countries developing airborne forces and air forces as part of their military capability, that cyber warfare is here to stay. How it's going to play out, what it's going to look like, well, that's for the future to see. Um, but what we can say with great certainty is that it is here to stay and that it is going to become a significant component of how states relate to each other outside of diplomacy. How do you feel the American government and you know even the Canadian governments the Western Alliance, how well do you think they have done in terms of response to this in this new sort of era that we're, that we're in? In other words, their coordination with one another, uh, being able to you know, put together the resources. Is that this new playbook that we're going to have to now improve and, and optimize or do you feel that there's things that they could have done, should have done, um, and that still is an area? So difficult to comment on because so much of what we've seen governments to do both before the 24th of February as well as after sits in the classified realm and we will only find out about it you know, decades from now. But what's pretty clear is this, um, Cyber Command has been acting forward for months before February. Um, and we've seen the results of that. 
Um, objectively, we've seen Russian command and control basically in the shambles. Um, we've seen the very effective passing of very specific intelligence for targeting purposes, both geospatial as well as signals, as well as cyber intelligence, to the point where we've seen the largest loss of Russian staff, general officers um, in any conflict ever, um, you know, through, through targeted strikes. So I think, you know, the effectiveness with which the five eyes have supported Ukraine by closing that loop between cyber intelligence and shooter has been exceptional. What it looks like, you know, how it's been put into place, well, that, that's going to stay pretty classified for quite a long time. Um, but on the effect side, we can certainly see it. Where this may be really critical and important, you know, in the days and weeks ahead, is that one of the infrastructures which would be most important to disrupt is the cyber nuclear infrastructure. And that's the command and control infrastructure that Russia depends on in order to be able to manage and launch its 15,000 nuclear missiles. And you can bet that this is a hard problem challenge, which is being worked on by, by some minds in the Pentagon and Cyber Command, even as we speak. Yeah, that's actually a really good one. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one of the fears that all you know US has, the Western Alliance has. And that is one thing that I think Putin is really relying on to kind of scare the, the NATO allies about his potential move to engage uh, nuclear. How, so you, what you're saying is that that is something that they should be thinking about, but obviously we won't know. Well, no, what I'm saying is this is a problem that's been talked about or thought about and, and actually war-gamed out for more than yeah. a decade. And that's the vulnerability of nuclear command and control systems, as well as the sensors that are used in order to drive decisions on the nuclear escalation chain. But really, you know, short of um, <laughs> short of going into World War III, there are very few ways of being able to counteract the launch of nuclear weapons. Yeah. One of them may well be disrupting the command and control chain. And that's a cyber problem, but that's a very different cyber problem than hacking into critical infrastructure or, or you know, running an information campaign on, on, on Facebook. But you can bet, given the fact that, yeah, the, the Russian Federation has definitely made it clear that according to its doctrine, if it sees a existential threat to its homeland of any kind, that it will use nuclear weapons preemptively or as a response. So by extrapolation, thinking at how that event could be forestalled yeah if all fails, will invariably involve, you know, some very, very sophisticated and very, very high risk cyber capabilities. Right. You've described how, how much work has gone into, even in the course of the last few years, how much work has gone into giving us the, the level of calm that we've seen so far in cyber, cyber landscape in, in the West. But maybe as, as, a, as a last question for the day, um, what do you see as sort of the impact of all of this in, in the cyber preparation and, and the playbook as it's being written for the average person and their, and their cyber existence going forward? Well, that's a good question. I, I think, look, for, for the average individual, you know, cybersecurity comes down to, you know, whether my account's being hacked, my identity is gone, and, and whether I can use my computer well. So it's maybe the wrong scale to be looking at. I mean, it's the same way as, you know, how, how, how much do average individuals really care about highway safety, except for the fact that they want their car to go from A to B and not be in an accident. I think where things have changed is at the level of public institutions and at the political level. You know, I remember, you know, a decade ago when I was talking about cyber espionage, um, very often, you know, anything that I talked to, to politicians would fall on deaf ears. 
because at the end of the day, you know, anything, any technology sufficiently sophisticated may as well be magic. And, you know, most politicians don't deal well with magic. They deal well with healthcare, employment, things that people care about. That's changed, you know, and it's changed a lot, as I said, because of the pandemic, because of a recognition of how dependent we are, because of the fact that work is changing, that we as individuals, you know, are tethered to our jobs now through the technologies that we're using right now for this interview, for example. So on that level, I think overall, you know, the, the awareness and the importance of cybersecurity or digital hygiene or digital resilience or digital citizenship, you know, has now become the lexicon of politics in the way that it hasn't before. And that, you know, is a positive difference because the reality is, you know, we're no longer just citizens of states. We're now citizens of cyberspace as well. And that digital citizenship component is the one that's going to really make a difference, both in terms of the safety and security of the communities that belong with online, but also very importantly in the exercise of civic responsibilities and rules, uh, which as we've seen over the last few, few years, um, you know, are, are now, now happening in cyberspace in ways that they simply haven't before and probably even more importantly than, than they do in physical space. Very important. Yep. And it's been a fascinating exploration of, of that whole aspect of it. So thanks so much for your time today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Tech Sequences. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.